you know, how we show up in the world, how we show how I show up in, in, in the community, in recovery, in meditation, in art, in this whole package of, of um, what I hope to be just that integrated self, you know, like never the same. It's temporary. We're always changing and having containing the light in the dark. Hello, how's it going? Welcome to the Inspired Astrology Podcast. This is Lauren K. Hickman, your guide, your host. The new moon's coming up, right? New moon in Virgo. So that means when the sun and moon align within the same degree of the same sign, that's your new moon. So that's uh, Virgo coming up here on Monday. And while I was doing some research on this particular moon, you know, we'll get into the astrology of it, but uh, for me, <laughs> things tend to be political, uh, just a little bit, just a skosh, as they would say, um, because spiritual politics, they are spirituality and politics and the things that are happening in our time are reflections of what's happening in the universe. As above, so below, as within, so without. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Labor Day. Ooh, fun. Um, only because uh, as an adult who has been a laborer since I was about 12 years old, um, either babysitting or working in retail or in coffee shops or helping out in bars and restaurants, I have been working for <laughs> 25 years already. And labor is a big part of the way that we exchange with the world. And Virgo being the sign of true service, I think that there's a correlation. No, there is a correlation with the new moon falling on Labor Day this year. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Labor Day. Um, You know, obviously America, industrial revolution after the agricultural revolution right so we changed our models from being agricultural and rural and people spreading out into the countrysides to just have these micro communities and things started to concentrate within larger cities and workers would flock there uh, to find work to do for money in exchange to live right that's that's kind of how society worked at that time. It wasn't quite as democratic. A lot of the uh, social services came around in the 20s and 30s in the United States. But 1894 was the first official Labor Day. So that means that there was like 10 years of people being pissed off at the shit working conditions. Um, So terrible working conditions for both adults and children. I mean, there were kids as young as five working in these factories and in industrial situations. Um, And these tended to be impacting poor families and the recently immigrated to the United States. Children were paid much less than their adult counterparts. And the work days were 12 hours long. And they worked seven days a week without proper compensation without breaks or even safe and sanitary working conditions. Um, So that's what this labor holiday is about, is the Haymarket riots that happened in Chicago in the late 1880s. 
have to mark that in the in the notes to remember <laughs> what year exactly that happened. Um, but this this was this was riots, people unionizing together. This is sort of the beginning of the the union style of um, pr- protecting workers' rights. So again, the U.S. manufacturing supplanted agricultural modes of being, and this incredible economy was built on the backs of laborers. And there was a continued disparity between the wealthy and the poor. And one of my favorite words I get to use here, robber barons, robber barons, (laughs) people who ran these giant corporations and uh, exploited workers. And I can think of so many books that that demonstrated this, right? Like uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which was written in 1906, uh, was specifically about the meatpacking industry. So these, these big corporations were making mountains of money during the Industrial Revolution era, and they would set workers up to fail consistently. And um, I know John Steinbeck wrote a couple novels about the same horrible working conditions that people were put in, and that, that was a little bit later on during the Dust Bowl era. But Upton Sinclair's work in the jungle focuses on the exploitation. Um, Hey, there's work out here and we'll set you up in this house that has no plumbing or sewage and you'll be stuck in this because you'll never be able to pay the rent or pay for the food and you will constantly be working and almost indentured uh, in servitude to these massive corporations that are just fucking you. Uh, it was really gross, right? And so it's it's really important to consider what Labor Day means in American history. Um, right now, in 2021, as I'm recording this, um, the Republican Party is bitching about how uh, the unemployment benefits are keeping people from getting back to work. And I would like to argue, based on Pew Research Center studies and some of the economic uh, considerations or theories that are proposed here um, from a more neutral standpoint, in my opinion, but uh, there's a great reassessment going on in the U.S. economy. The Pew Research Center survey uh, found that this year 66% of the unemployed had seriously considered changing their field of work a far greater percentage than during the Great Recession. So that was 2008 uh, when I couldn't get a job and I worked at Starbucks. (laughs) So people who used to work in restaurants or in travel uh, are finding higher paying jobs in warehouses or in real estate, for example. Right now the market is booming. Or they want a job that is more stable and less likely to be exposed to the coronavirus or any other deadly virus down the road for that matter. So consider that grocery stores shed over 49,000 workers in April and nursing care facilities lost nearly 20,000. All this is from the Washington Post, by the way. I wish I was this smart to like gather all this data, but uh, there are other things to focus on. So economists describe this phenomenon as reallocation friction reallocation friction, the idea that the types of jobs in the economy are changing and workers are taking a while to figure out what 
new jobs they want or what skills they need for different roles. And that's, you know, going to take some time to reassess, you know, so I think that a lot of small businesses that I've talked to are also going through different, you know, labor issues. And so the National Law Review, here are the the kind of main themes. There's going to be changes to federal labor and employment policies, right? We're hoping that the minimum wage, the national minimum wage is going to be lifted from like, what, seven or eight dollars an hour uh, to something more manageable, like fifteen dollars an hour. And that's why so many workers are protesting to get (laughs) decent income, right? I think that what waiters make $2 an hour and then rely on tips, no wonder nobody wants to go back to work. Like people are pissed off. A lot of folks don't, don't want to wear masks. It's a, it's like a highly dangerous environment, creates so much anxiety, grocery stores, all of that. Those are high exposure situations. And, you know, we have to be considerate of what these restaurants are. I mean, they're trying to continue to boost the economy and to provide foods and meals for people who have that luxury to, to dine out. But about what about the workers, right? People are like, oh, well, I got shit service, so I'm not going to tip them. Well, yeah, they're like overworked, dude. <laughs> All right. So then, you know, other other things the National Law Review said in labor policies, the COVID-19 compliance, litigations and vaccinations. I, I don't think I need to say a lot more about that. This has completely changed everything. Uh, requirements for vaccinations, uh, litigations against, you know, the, the need to do so or against others who choose not to. And compliance, uh, making sure people wear masks, especially when there's mandates up, right? Right now, there's suggestions in most states uh, due to the Delta variant and the scary as fuck Lambda variant. So diversity and inclusion. I don't know if I need to say much more about that, but uh, this is about hiring fairly and inclusively and not... Uh, you know, like I live in a right-to-work state where they can fire people should they come out as transgender. They don't need it. They don't need a reason to fire people. It's like right to work, you're out of here. Like we don't need to put up with this. So, right, di- diversity inclusion, and then customer face covering issues, which I've already touched on a little bit. <sighs> working in retail, you know, trying to manage other people's expectations. When I was running Kin last summer before moving up to Milwaukee, I mean, that was, that was a huge, huge issue. You know, not everybody was compliant with that and would get up in arms if you asked them to wear a mask. And this was like, well, well before the vaccine, this is well, well before anybody knew what the fuck was going on with this virus. It was a really scary time. We're trying to keep businesses open and let people get out of their homes and look at crystals or whatever it is that they wanted to do. But the customer face covering issues is still a problem in respecting uh, boundaries and people's autoimmune issues and all kinds of things. I mean, you don't know what is going on inside of another person with their immune system, with their health, if they have had an organ transplant, if they're needing to work to provide for a family and their housing and all of the things that are happening. We don't know, you know, and that's why it's just polite to wear a mask. If someone asks you to just, you know, be cool. Uh, Disability access issues is another one of those things with labor laws that needs to get attended to. Um, 
everybody, you know, if you're, if you're capable of working, should be able to work. You know, disability should not be a hindrance to that. Um, there's been massive uh, extension of disability issues in the last 30 to 40 years, I'm going to say, but we have so much further to go in being fully inclusive. Um, medical marijuana usage, also another issue with labor, right, is because some states have medical marijuana legal. And then if a company is testing you, you know, is that an invasion of privacy? Uh, should it be allowed in states where medical licensure for use of cannabis uh, is okay? Something to consider. And then, of course, state and local law changes that are happening all the time. Um, so what is causing the labor shortage, right? Um, Small Business Association of Michigan uh, just this month wrote uh, COVID-19 health concerns, the need for at-home care for children uh, and the elderly, potentially. Workers are holding out for higher wages. We discussed this a little bit. Workers are seeking more flexibility. People are making different decisions about work and more people are starting their own businesses. Um, people are reassessing what they want to do and how they want to work. So that's some of the, the bigger themes that I see here. Um, you know, and this idea of flexibility, like, uh, you know, I was, I was trying to consider what has changed in 2021 that was different than 50 years ago. Well, a lot has changed, right? Uh, you know, both like sometimes single family homes, the nuclear family unit of the 50s no longer exists, um, that most most families cannot live off of a single income. Uh, the education uh, costs are much higher. So people are paying off debts for a lot longer. Um, the needs and requirements of technology and our attentions are divided. Uh, there is so much more stimulation and so much more happening that a 40-hour work week seems ridiculous. I mean, how many memes have you seen about like, and we're supposed to like wash and clean the dishes three times a day and work out and do this and travel and commute and take care of the kids? You know, everyone is overwhelmed. And I think that part of it was this this shutdown was part of this subconscious cry to the universe, like, just make it stop. Just make it stop for one moment. And, you know, again, this is all my opinion. The stuff I've been reading off of is from people much smarter than myself who are aware of uh, economic and labor crises and stuff like that. So um, I wanted to define the word labor as well uh, in context to this term and then other things that are happening currently in society. So labor, to exert one's power of body or mind, especially with painful or strenuous strenuous effort. Work. Two, to move with great effort. The truck labored up the hill. <laughs> Three, to suffer from some disadvantage or distress labor under a delusion, right? And then four, to be in the labor of giving birth. And you have to be living in a box to not have heard about the abortion bans going on in Texas and how deeply, deeply problematic this is for uh, menstruators' health, humans with uteruses, birthing human beings. And 
you know, I, I would encourage you to get in the know with these issues. Um, I know that there's a, a TikTok uh, dude that put like a virus on the site and, and TikTokers are crashing the site for uh, the, what is it, the whistleblowing for people who are potentially getting abortions in Texas. I mean, this is scary, scary stuff, people, when the government is getting up in your body, up in your business, up in your uh, right to free will and right to access safe and available, affordable abortion care because abortion is health care. I know a lot of my listeners are humans who identify as female and this affects all of us. Um, Planned Parenthood is receiving donations to do these kind of, uh, you know, protests and to to put money into lobbying and and trying to help Texas and preventing this from cascading around our country. Um, I I shared in a post on Instagram the other day, you know, something kind of private to my family history that my great-grandmother during the Great Depression uh, induced uh, an abortion for herself. Um, because she had two kids and they lived on a farm in Centerville, Iowa. And that was just not, not possible for her to care for more children in such a desperate time. Uh, not only is my great grandma metal as fuck, uh, she put herself in a seriously dangerous situation. And I was, I was thinking about when I was, uh, a teen, I acted in a play called Blue Denim and it was about back alley abortions during the 1950s. And of course, Jim Lampson <laughs> at Valley High School, what a guy, really bringing the political uh, to the stage uh, about families and relationships and these kind of issues. Um, I don't know why he chose that. I don't know why I got the lead in that play. Uh, however, I had to go do a lot of research and thanks to Jules at Lost Souls, for those who remember Lost Souls in the Cottage Grove district in Des Moines, it was a hangout for teenagers. It was a safe place without alcohol that had adults there that teens could go and hang out at until midnight. It was a really cool place. And I feel like there needs to be more spaces for young people to do their self-development work uh, with some guidance. But Jules had, you know, worked for Planned Parenthood and did a lot of sex education. And so I had to sit down and watch these terrifying films about the pre-Roe versus Wade era and all of the things that I learned about what women endured and the issues that they went through, uh, you know, people who had, you know, um, pregnancies as a result of forced, unconsensual sex, also known as rape. For people who had unviable pregnancies, um, flying out of the country to go get abortion care, you know, and that's that's a privilege of the wealthy. That that's for people who have access to money and funds and the ability to to do things like that. And um, I don't like the term back alley abortions. It feels really out of date, uh, but it does feel pertinent in describing how bad it was. Um, have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire? It's a French film. If you've not seen that, uh, there is a, a beautiful scene 
of the women and the solidarity in this group. And there's even use of cannabis in the film, like through a salve that these, you know, these uh, herbalist women in 18th century uh, rural France uh, were, were making these salves and taking care of one another and having these meetups around bonfires and chanting. And it was it's such a beautiful solidarity about uh, femme, femme culture, uh, the, the sacred wisdom that comes through these spaces of nature. Um, but there, there is a, a young character who becomes pregnant and is taken to, uh, I would say, like a midwife who also performed those tasks of, uh, what do they call it? A cut wife? I think that was another term that they used um, to perform an abortion. And the, the main character in the film is a painter who comes to draw the portrait of this woman, this lady on fire. And she, she paints a portrait, re, has her friends reenact this scene of, of doing the abortion. And I think that it was this very tender and vulnerable, intimate moment. Um, it makes me think of eighth house stuff, Scorpio stuff, the things that we don't look at stuff. So I've gone on quite a tangent there my darlings. Um, but this is, this is labor, labor, working class, proletariat, social class, compromising those who do manual labor or who work for wages. And this connection with Virgo's energy, with stewardship and mentorship and right service. Um, I, I did a lot of thinking about Virgo's protective qualities of service and what is right for the individual, the integrity, the daily habitual patterns, the temperance, temperance, the prudence, right? Uh, and the season, the season itself is is kind of rhythmically involved with getting your shit together. This is about organizing, right? And what does organizing make me think of? Like union organizing, um, labor organizing, but. Uh, Virgo is typically linked, there's a couple different resources about which goddesses are connected with, which deities, I should say, rather than the word goddess, but which deities are associated with Virgo. And there's a typical link between Dyke, the Greek goddess of justice, right, which I found kind of fascinating, and then Persephone, who that's what the the constellation of Virgo is is uh, connected to Persephone, who was the daughter of Demeter, uh, and Demeter was the harvest goddess, and Persephone was uh, taken by Hades into the underworld, and there was some, you know. <laughs> grief that went on with this experience and Demeter stopped making the sunshine basically and the plants stopped growing so there had to be a like a a discussion with Hades like all right you let me have Persephone for half the year and then she can go down into the darkness and join Hades as his wife Uh, there's a much longer story to this involving pomegranates and all of this you know beautiful uh, mythology but um that's that's the story of the seasons. That's where you know Greek mythology came up with these seasons of the harvest goddess and daughter Persephone and the seasons of the year. And then I think of this the the symbol of the maiden, and the maiden is based on Astria. And in Greek mythology, she was the last immortal 
to abandon Earth at the end of the Silver Age, when all the gods fled to Mount Olympus. Um, hence this sign's association with Earth. And dude, when I read that, I just, all of these like light bulbs clicked for me. Something clicked in me about the nature of the Bodhisattva. And this is not relative to Greek mythology, but I think the Bodhisattva concept exists across the earth, but this, this word comes specifically from Buddhism. A bodhi, awakened sattva, um, this, is, this is a service-oriented position where one takes a vow that until the last blade of grass becomes enlightened, that a bodhisattva will put off their own experience of enlightenment or transcendence from the earth plane to support the process of others awakening. And what an, um, an amazing analogy of the service, the true service offered with, with Virgo in its highest expression. To abstain, right, prudence, these terms that are very much associated with Virgo, uh, to abstain from one's own self-gratification or development, developmental process on an evolutionary scale uh, to help others in that process true service. All right, so that's my spiel on labor laws and the new moon in Virgo falling on Labor Day. I hope that you enjoyed that. We're going to take a commercial break here. Um, I'm going to talk about Kay Apothecary, who is the Inspired Astrology Podcast's primary sponsor. Um, And I want to thank all of those who have signed up for Dragon Donna. Uh, I had been approached by multiple people about providing a Patreon page. And, yo, your girl does not want to do another social media outlet or one more thing. Like, my plate is full. I would I would love to, like, oh, get on Patreon and, like, provide you with these, like, specific things. But I, I am just not capable of that. Like, my Pisces moon is like, hell no. I don't have enough earth in my chart to keep building and organizing for these types of tasks. So you'll have to forgive me on that level. Um, but I did provide a $5 level offering. Um, just It's a monthly $5 extraction from your account. Uh, this is basically like buying me a, co- a cup of coffee every month uh, or donating towards Dragon's Food Fund um, because I want him to live forever, so I buy him the good stuff. Sorry. <laughs> Dragon's sitting here looking at me right now. Um, so Dragon Donna is available on my website, and I'll put a link up uh, in the podcast. But Donna is a Sanskrit word for offering. And, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition that I was uh, mainly mainly, I don't want to say raised in, but it was like raising my consciousness in, Donna offerings were separate from the cost of admission. It was, you know, it was a a genuine, generous offering to the teachers for being a vehicle for teaching. And I do all of my work free of cost to everyone, right? My content the Instagram page, the moon mailers, all of those things I make available on a widespread basis. And it's through the support of people like Andrea Gorsh with K Apothecary and to individuals like Angie Straub, shout out, 
uh, and other people who have thrown me some thrown me some bones. Michelle Slauson, thank you, thank you. Lindy Rowe, thank you so much for being continuous supporters. Tia Bernard, uh, Shana Meshbesher, I think of so many people who have continued to sort support me on this path, and I wanted to make it a little easier for y'all. So the Dragon Donna is a five dollar offering that is uh, subtracted once a month. And if, if you get something out of this content, consider this con- community-supported astrology, right? My mentor, Ryan Evans, does this through a Facebook account. Um, I am just trying to make myself as available as I can to other people. So with your contribution, with your continued support, I can continue to create this material and do what I feel like I was meant to do on this planet. <laughs> So uh, check that out. I will um, try to organize uh, a higher offering level or maybe like a one-time donation where I make a mug with dragon's face on it. And I was thinking about my magical uh, dragon cocoa concoction that I make during the winter months, uh, if I could bottle that and serve it to y'all. So we'll see what happens. Uh, So K-Apothecary is in Mount Vernon, Iowa, and it's a self-care for the modern mystic shop. Natural, local, conscious as fuck. So they provide self-care for the modern mystic by offering intentionally prepared products for your personal rituals. Designed and curated to infuse your practice with positive energy and to assist you in raising your vibration. So you can shop the apothecary at kapothecary.com. That's K-A-E. A-P-O-T-H-E-C-A-R-Y, kapothecary.com. They provide consultations, specialized herbal tea brews, books of all varieties, spell books, witchcraft, natural magic, tarot, numerology. They have ritual supplies, um, things that you might not be able to snag up uh, on a regular basis. Self-care products, uh, soaps, local things, wares, wonderful things. Uh, They have a whole herbal stock of products, household items, crafty things, and of course their brand label of CBD in multiple flavors. I see mint and strawberry. I'm sure there's a delicious batch of those. And their website has this beautiful candle selection for um, intentional magic work, ritual magic work. Um, and of course you can always use a white candle for anything else that you, that you need. If you can't get your hands on a pink one or a purple one or a blue one, but these guys have you set up. So thank you K Apothecary for your contribution and support for the inspired astrology podcast. Um, okay. So the new moon in Virgo is hitting us on Monday, September 6th. This is 2021. Uh, time is 7.52 p.m. from Central Standard Time. And I'm running this chart from Marquette, Michigan, because that's where I'm going to be this weekend, hanging out with Lake Superior. Um, Lake Superior is my partner's other girlfriend, um, so we have to go see her, visit her, say what up. Uh, if you've not been to Grand Marais or anywhere around Lake Superior, you should go check it out. Uh, And I'm going to take my partner to the Porcupine Mountains, which I have fond memories of uh, going there um, with my dad as a teenager to go visit um, my uncle H.C., who lived on Lake Gagibic, Dugupers, Upper Peninsula. So words that come to mind with moon in Virgo is the insides, sun in Virgo, the outside, moon in Virgo, self-criticism, 
perfectionism, busy hands. The sun in Virgo, the external aspect, judgment, being critical, micromanaging, processing. I love that word, processing. So virtue and service and helpfulness are all positive aspects of the Virgo expression. Virgo is associated with the sixth house. For those um, studying astrology, the sixth house is the house of work, daily rituals, health, uh, animals. I love that. Um, And esoterically, it's the house of the masters. Jupiter is the planet of the masters. Sixth house, house of the masters. Mentorship is a word that I often use with Virgo energy. So I'd love for you to keep that in mind. Mentorship is one way of providing service by using your wisdom and sharing it with others who may benefit. Uh, So don't hoard the goods. Don't be a dragon on a pile of gems. Get that information out there. Share the work. Okay, so thoughtful speech was the main theme, right speech. So in Buddhism, we have the four noble truths and then the eightfold path and right speech is one of those rights. And I think that uh, the rights are incredibly important to our human development. Um, My teacher teaches 12 rights, um, that, that these are kind of extensions and expressions of higher mind. Um, but, but right speech being a part of that, thoughtful speech, because of Mercury's association with Virgo. Let's see. So the sun and moon are conjunct in Virgo, um, giving this the time to plant new seeds. What are you working on right now? What are you expressing? What are you trying to build for yourself? As earth signs are all about building. Virgo is more like sand than it is a solid earth mountain. Uh, So it is about processing and movement, uh, hence the association with Mercury, which is very much about movement and connection. And I I really like how Virgo brings the mind to the world. You know, so all of you Virgos out there celebrating your season, you are magic, you are necessary, and I super duper appreciate you. Um... The Neptune's opposition to the sun and moon is pretty wide. So I'm not going to say that that's happening, but I am going to say that Neptune and Mars are still in a opposition up through uh, this full moon. When you have oppositions, you know, you're looking for a pretty close degree. So Neptune at 21 degrees Pisces, Mars at 24 degrees Virgo. And when you're dealing with outer planets, you shorten the orb, right? You shorten the leash because it is way, way out there in the universe. I think when you're dealing with personal planets and orbs, you can always go a little wider, like 10 degrees. But when you start dealing with the outer planets, it's it's tightened the string a little bit there. So Neptune and Mars went conjunct, or not, sorry, opposite... <laughs> They were in direct opposition on Thursday this week, yesterday, um, the 2nd of September. So this made me think a lot about water rights. uh, And I did do some posting about that on Instagram. You can go check that out. I have a picture of Tim Curry in heels in an intertube in a pool. Uh, This is from Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is one of those defining films of my childhood and probably one of the reasons that I get to be the queer weirdo that I am today. Um, 
I love Tim Curry. Wherever you are, Tim Curry, I love you. Um, but Rocky Horror Picture Show, although it's like a really weird film, the more I watch it in adulthood, I'm like, what? However, the end of this this story, the end of the film is this scene, like a dance hall scene. And they do this stage floor show and end up in this pool swimming, Neptune. And don't dream it, be it. So this idea of Neptune and Mars is really about like bringing your vision of who and what you are into reality, right? So are you sabotaging your dreams or are you fighting the current of life? Mars in Virgo and Neptune in Pisces are aligning in opposition on Thursday, and this is going to maintain through next week. So the planet of act before you think, which is Mars, is lassoed by the planet of dreams, visions, and of course, escapist behavior. So I made a note, um, uh, avoid excess drinking this weekend because you might say something stupid. <laughs> um, this could bring up a lot of... Uh, of Resentment. I mean, Mars and Virgo, man, if you're not doing what you want to be doing, there can be some hot, hot resentment involved with that. And with Neptune and Pisces there, it's like, I just don't want to deal with this. I'm going to escape. Um, so if you are someone who imbibes, drink some water, right? Eat some food, slow down. Don't drink at something. Um, not going to help with anything at all. So conversely, if we spin this energy, what if Mars and structured organized Virgo is helping to make big blurry dreams into reality? So the big blurry is the Neptune Virgo. So that takes it from illusion to illumination. And also we have Chiron and Aries. Uh, <laughs> that's the don't dream it, be it energy. And we'll talk more about Chiron and Aries opposite to Mercury and Libra here in a second. So Virgo offers discernment, Pisces, the big picture. And this doesn't mean you have to stay in the minute, ultra-structured activity all the time. Take in and space out, dream out the window, gaze, listen to sounds and scents of this changing, mutable season. I mean, all you just have to step outside and you can feel how it's moving. Things are moving. Things are changing. It's fall. Um, so paying attention to the news in our communities, I was thinking about the pipeline, uh, issue with water rights. Um, and just the other day I saw protesters on Lake Michigan and there's all kinds of information putting out by the water protectors. So I would say throw a bone, uh, to organizations that are doing that work. Um, there's a Venmo stop, stop line three. Um, my girl, MacDubs, resistline3.org. And she also said that you can text 50409 uh, and you text P-U-C-Z-G-E, Puck Z-G-E, <laughs> P-U-C-Z-G-E to 50409. And this will help to um, alert your representatives in your area through ResistBot um, really easy way to get in touch. Um, mine, my stuff went to Joni Ernst in Iowa and she said that she was for the pipeline. So for my Iowa listeners, like you need to get up in her ear about how this is just messed up entirely. 
And I'm sorry that I dropped so many F-bombs in my podcast. I need to be more mindful of that, especially if you have kiddos listening with you. Um, It's such a nice word. My mom always said it's just like the perfect word for release. Just helps you move energy. It it transmutes. (laughs) All right, so... Um, so Mercury is the ruler of, uh, of Virgo. And so Mercury is in Libra right now. And I, I think that, you know, when you're dealing with Libra energy and we're moving into that season, are you doing stuff because other people want you to do it? Or is it because it's what you want to do? That's the big question. You know, are you being influenced by other people's response or their mirror to you, the Libra Venus mirror? Um, you know, are you looking to get the right responses, responses and reactions that you want? I know as someone with a Libra rising, I do it all the time. I'm always looking for affirmation, uh, for people to laugh or nod or, mm-hmm. and it's, it, you know, I think probably doing this podcast is a really great way for me to get outside of that because I'm just talking to myself in my room, honestly, just me and my dog. He doesn't care what I say, but I care um, that I'm transmitting the best information that I can. So thoughtful speech, you know, thinking about what you're saying um, and thinking twice before you speak and you'll be twice the better person for it. Um, Mercury is trying to Saturn in Aquarius and trying to the North Node in Gemini. So this is this is some big air energy, people. So that's that's what I mean about right speech, how we connect, how we communicate, how we commune with others. And are we being thoughtful? Are we getting stubborn? Are we detaching from ideas and concepts that we actually really do care about and that we do want to communicate? Um, what you say matters. And the sixth house is an intercepted Leo. So this is, I mean, this is all about like, are, am I being listened to? Do people care about what I have to say? Um, so with Chiron in Aries opposite to this Mercury Libra, and they are pretty much exact. Um, are you acting out? Are you acting out on your personal fears? Right? Are you acting out on your personal fears about who you are and how you want to be seen? So again, think twice before you speak. Neptune sextile to Pluto. Um, the, the information that came through with that was doing some gratitude lists this new moon. What positive changes are happening in your life right now? What are you willing and able to process in your life? Willing and able. That doesn't mean force yourself into circumstances that make you uncomfortable. We're not trying to re-traumatize anyone here with a suggestion about homework and doing some gratitude lists and some reassessment lists. Um, I think that's all I want to say about that. Yep. So you have Pluto squared to Venus and Jupiter trine to Venus. Um, Venus is about self-worth and it's about what we what we attract, what we bring towards ourselves. And so this is about transfer transforming your values, maybe reconsidering or looking under the surface about what's going on in your relationships, what needs to be said, what needs to be done, um, what little resentments are hiding under the surface there. Uh, from where I did this chart, it is a heavily packed 
every single personal planet is in the house of relationships, this super wide house of relationships from up here in Wisconsin, Michigan area. So consider that reassessment time. What is working for you? Do things feel balanced? I always say that a good friendship is like passing a $20 bill back and forth until you die. $20 bill back and forth forever. It should always feel like equal exchange. Mars and Virgo resentments. You know, I don't, I just want you to be able to like work with your situations, your relationships. And my last thoughts here, the big, the big star on my sheet is that the sun and moon in Virgo are trying to Uranus and Taurus. So I think that I've talked a lot about labor laws and water rights and a lot of things that are going on astrologically that are being emphasized in the world. How can we be of service to this world, to this earth that we are planted on? Uranus and Taurus is indicating climate issues. It's bringing chaos. Uh, It's trying to illuminate all the shit, man. What happened this week? We had floods in New York. We had a hurricane in Louisiana and along the coastline. There's fires happening. There is all kinds of crap that is being surfaced right now. And if we don't do something about it, What about future generations, you know? What about right use of resources? Something to think on. Um, The image that I'm going to associate with this week is a duck looking calm, cool, collected on the surface and kicking like crazy, kicking like hell underneath the water, getting where it needs to go. That's Virgo. Bringing in the duck energy. (laughs) So if you're hyper-focusing on other, um, turn the mirror around what's going on inside of yourself. Just do some consideration with that work. All right, I think I've I've spoken enough. Uh, (laughs) I am going to bring on Amy Putney Koenig, who is a Virgo, but not just a Virgo. Uh, She is an artist She's on the path of recovery and self-discovery. She does service work throughout the community. She utilizes yoga and meditation. She collaborates. She does these giant murals. She does these small things. She deals with death and healing and all of the things that come with the life experience and sovereignty of, of, of finding her path, her voice. And I absolutely adored this interview. I I feel like I got so much out of listening to Amy's story. And I hope that you'll you'll kick it with us for another hour and and hook into her journey as an inspiration. And I want to shout out to her and Kara Simons, my friend. They produced a deck, an oracle deck, for those of you who really enjoy oracle decks, the Prairie Majesty Oracle. And this was a long-term collaboration between Kara's ability to um, download, to channel, to work with nature wisdom specifically. And I've consulted her many times about nature wisdom personally. She is a dear friend and very, um, she has a lot of integrity when she's doing this work. It's very sacred and 
Um, I really honor her for the work that she's done to develop these skills for herself these this lifetime and many others before it. But she connected with Amy Putney Koenig and they made this incredible deck that is so easy to use. It's so gorgeous to hold and it can be used on a daily basis to really reflect back what's going on in your personal journey. And the Prairie Majesty Oracle, this is using wisdom from from the prairie, the the rivers and animals and nature and, and plants that grow here within the Midwest and beyond. Uh, so they're not abstract ideas of something that we don't interact with on a daily basis. These are wisdoms that come from our immediate environment. And I really, really honor this deck. And we get a chance to talk about it for a hot minute there at the end. But I'll share a link to the Prairie Majesty Oracle and to Amy Putney Koenig's work. And I really hope that you enjoy this interview and hope that you're taking care of yourself during this Virgo season. Stay inspired. Hey. I think we both said hey at the same moment. That was oh, really I love it. <laughs> yeah. So we're in Virgo season. You had your birthday this this week, which I is did. Yay. <laughs> yay. And I'm sure that we'll, you know, talk some about what process looks like for you. I was thinking a lot about um how you go back and look at your previous works or share things that have been part of your becoming. And like, I love the process of like how you use like composted death things. And like, if you wanted Mm. to, if you wanted to talk about the process of sticks and like how you got involved with that, or if you want to talk more about current events, like how you've gotten involved with mutual aid or supporting the BLM community or the murals that you're doing for local businesses. Like, yeah, that's great. I'm into that. I'm into talking about art and the, and that kind of path and recovery. And it's kind of that that self-discovery thing and um, Mm -hmm. kind of stepping into the integration of the light and the dark that we all carry with us. And the, the dark, you know, my artwork is a real kind of split personality of the bright and empowering, colorful, bold lines and um, kind of graphic, simple drawings in the paintings. And then in the collage, the sort of dark and haunting and, energetics that belong to someone else once once before that I weave in to tell a new story and and having done collage for years and paintings for years and for years the collage were based on found objects found papers and photographs like other people's stuff and it just kind of made me extra prepared to be able to get um you know, boxes of some family papers and stories and layers to create with that so that Okay, so first thing, first things first, Amy, <laughs> who cuts your hair? Oh my goodness, who cuts my hair? I well, I am a admitted hair salon whore through the years. I I run around to many hair salons, but my current long-standing relationship is with Ilani, and she is amazing. Like there, I'm old enough to have there been a time where people did not. Um, weren't so adventurous and risky. And so if I would go in with some crazy hair idea, oftentimes it would be like, uh, I don't know if you should do that. And even getting bleach was, I mean, I did my own hair for years and years. And then it became a break to, to 
get away from work or get away from the studio and just go have some magnificent creative person do my hair. And it's been amazing the last 10 years. There's so many creative individuals that, that have fun with it and take risks. But Alani is my girl now. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for letting me start off yes. with a silly question. I, I just, love it. Your, your style and your swagger and your expression of self is one of the, I think one of the most impactful pieces of, of your presence, Amy, because you're super powerful and super charged and super fiery. And I, and I adore all of those pieces of you. Oh man. Thank you so much. It, it makes me think of my mom telling me when I was younger, cause she did not like it all the time. And you know, I, as a kid, I wore braces and corrective shoes and eventually had to have surgeries. But those braces, in my mind, my mom made them something I loved. I was like three, four years old, but they were different. So there were big, heavy boots with these bars that went up to this belt around my waist and I had to sleep in them. And I, I attribute that to my love of heavy boots, you know, and um, but what my mom said to me when I was a teenager is that you do not need to try so hard to look different, to look like unique or freak was the word at the time, or you don't need to try so hard. You don't need to dress like that or look like that. People will already be able to know <laughs> that you are different, even if you look like everyone else. And I just could not, I could not deal with it. I had to be everything just, I like it a little bit askew all my life, just a little bit askew and off kilter. And I never felt like I fit in with I would call it at the time, we know there's no such thing as normal now, but like normal, normal girl hair or normal girl clothes, like I didn't feel myself in that way. And so I think we just get to be creative and develop our style. And I got hung up on some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I know, I know people can't see you and, and I'll post some pictures of you, of course, but I mean, you're covered pretty much head to toe with tattoos and you're often wearing, like you said, big boots and big personality. And I think that what's always struck me about you is how accessible you are, you know, that you're not like defiant and quiet and like moody, like you, you are expressive and wonderful and a delight to be around. And oh, you're sweet. I think that's Virgo that has shown up. Like, I think that's the Virgo caretaker in there that I didn't know it was there for a long time. And when I met you, where were you like 14 years old, this beautiful girl working at a coffee shop? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Right. <laughs> and um, you're have always been that bright light, that warm and welcoming, fiery light yourself, because sometimes you don't see it until you see it. You don't see it in yourself until you see it in others. And your glow and, and presence has always been um, a wonderful delight, uh, just a, a great to know and been so awesome to watch you evolve and to share, like you say, of being of service by sharing your knowledge and wisdom and also watching you go from um, playing it small a little bit in safe because that's what we do and take the leap to share all your gifts with the world wow that's a crazy sound <laughs> so are you are you at your husband's bike shop right i now? am at the bike shop that must be like the air compressor oh. <laughs> that's fun <laughs> well i mean i mean you as you as an individual and then you as a couple is a is a, pr a pretty big force but i want to focus in on um you know, your story and your journey, um, I mean, coming up in Des Moines and being a part of the cool fucking scene during the 90s and like 
Harry Marys and doing all of these murals all over town and then becoming a part of Styx, which is a, you know, now a national brand. Um, I mean, it's changed over the years. It definitely peaked maybe in the, in the aughts at some point. Um, but you've been a part of this, this company and then now defining yourself in all these different models, like moving into uh, yoga instruction, meditation, and then of course your leadership in the recovery community in Des Moines. Um, and I, I know that we talked about your braces when you were just a child, um, but when, when did other forms of expression come out? Like, when did you know that you were an artist, Amy? I have known I was an artist since I was a kid. That's one thing that has just stayed with me. And I feel grateful to have been able to be encouraged just to keep going. Like I have letters that I would write to my mom that I reached, she passed away in 2018 and in going through her stuff, I found a drawer of drawings like she would go out in the night and I would write her letters telling her to come kiss me goodnight when she got home. And they were just letters with the suns and moons and animals and creatures. And I have had the opportunity to just keep going. Like I never got to let go of that kid art or that passion that I loved as a kid for making art or being the, the kid in the classroom that other students would come to you to ask to draw stuff, draw Snoopy or draw animals or draw these kind of things. And I also attribute my art style, I feel like looks like that. Like is that kid-like simple? I love the, the rawness of human art in the sense that it doesn't always have to be hyper-educated or realistic. I love all that stuff too, but that's never been who I am. And just putting it out there, being expressive and drawing and adding words and colors. Like that's it, all my life. I feel like I've been an artist. I've had the opportunity to be an artist. I went to Iowa State University for fine arts and visual studies. And that was a gift. And I didn't realize until it was over what a gift to be able to go to college. I wasn't sure I wanted to go to college. I felt like a late bloomer in that sense where I just wanted to make art. I didn't know you know, what was next with that. And I missed some opportunities. And by the time I was done with college, I did really well and got awards and acknowledgements for creative thinking. And I made a bunch of hats and got grants to make hats and, um, and collage and paintings. But when it was done, I realized I didn't really push myself. I always had my own ideas. I was always like, I got this, I'll do my thing. Like, this is a, something they're asking me to do or an assignment. And I always had an idea, like it was over. And I was like, Oh, I don't think I ever really got challenged. Just because that mercurial mind of yours, you think that you just always had ideas bursting out of the seams? Yeah. I felt, and well, I, I, I contributed, I attributed it to some, this kind of arrogance of like, Oh, you have that idea, but I'm going to do it this way. And they would always be like, okay, great. Do it this way. That's great. That's good. And um, and I appreciated that at the time. And it's all still good now. But when it was over, I was like, wow, that was a lot of money that a wonderful person paid for me to go to school and to not feel like super challenged or like made uncomfortable. I guess, you know, that I didn't want to be uncomfortable in it. And I don't I didn't know until years later that we grow through being uncomfortable through doing stuff we don't want to do. And maybe I would have been a different artist because I've always kind of stayed in my 
in my comfort zone. Like, this is what I do. This is who I am. I mean, I would, I would do art shows and not want to show up because I didn't want people to know who the artist was because then they might change their opinion of the art. I wanted it to so be so much about the viewer seeing the art that I didn't want to be a part of it. But how can people buy your work if you're not going to show up? But I, I mean, I also sometimes just was too drunk to be there at the same time. Oh. <laughs> that happened too. But there's a little bit of, um, you know, some debilitating coolness and um, arrogance that was in some of that early work. And maybe I'm being hard on myself because I felt like I had a vision and an idea and it was fierce and it was looking at the world in a different way, looking at the world in a symbolic way. Symbols have always been a part of my whole artistic repertoire um, and animals and kind of challenging. Like I did a whole series of hats in the early 90s on on what happens when we look different and you walk by, you know, sometimes people won't address you in the moment or at that time they wouldn't meet your eyes. But when you would walk by, then they would say something to their friends about what you look like or, or judge you, or it was real social study in the form of hats that you would wear and they would have words and images on them, just looking at society. And now I feel like we're in a world where, it's not that that stuff doesn't happen, the judgment and the um, terrible things that people, you know, the negativity that people say to and about each other, but it felt different because I was a young person at the time. And I think we have heightened um, response to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to, I just want to pause and reflect a little bit on the Virgoness of like the recent monologue just given. <laughs> <laughs> like, good. Yeah, good, well, good. You, you said things like, you know, it, it's hard for me to be challenged because I think that there is this, I know, I know, I know, I know that comes with the Virgo energy because there needs to be a proficiency in the way that you, you handle yourself. And so maybe not like by being overly confident coming out of Leo season, right? You know, yes. <laughs> like yes. being o- overly confident can be a defense mechanism or just a function a Virgo because shit needs to get done. So you don't think about it. It's like, let's just do it. Oh yeah. And then there's this piece of like being in the background, which makes me think of Virgo's desire to, you know, they would rather be the crew behind the stage rather than the ones out on the stage, depending on what your individual makeup is like. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So letting the art speak for itself, I think is a function of like, look at what I created. I need to get back to work. I'm in the background, like continuing to to work with this process. And then you said, Amy, I'm hard on myself, (laughs) which is, you know, I, I think that that's, that's really sweet as this only one tiny aspect of your being the sun in Virgo and the way that you express yourself in the world through your hands, through service. And I think that that the, the hats project is even a desire to, communicate social ideas through the process of artwork. Um, Tell me more about how that expression evolved for you. I I know that, you know, I see lots of pictures of you from the 80s and 90s of you being sort of like a rebel child and like makeup and shaving your head and all the fun clothes. But then you took that to the page and took that to, you know, acts of acts of art out in the world and shock factors like putting dead animals, you know, out, you know, and and honoring them. 
I think that is a, a function of twisting opinion. You know, when you're surrounded by people or you think you're surrounded by people that have this opinion of what everything is like, like this is beauty, the whole shaved head. First of all, I was doing a lot of sewing and my hair was in my face. And so I shaved my head and I loved it. And it was, I was really fascinated with um, the beauty of women, like our necks, like the, just the back of the head and the neck. It's like a baby, like an infant is so precious back there and that vulnerable, beautiful space on a woman, the back of her head and the neck. And I would write stories about, or I wrote a particular story about, you know, Egyptians and beauty and standards. And because at the time, even late eighties, it was pretty shocking to shave your head. We had Sinead O'Connor as our example. And we had like crass, lots of punk rock, amazing um, women in the world, aside from the pixie cut and the super short cut. It's just that rebelliousness and beauty, like seeing the beauty in it. And the dead animals was about like how beautiful this, dead bird is how beautiful this um why is something not beautiful in death when it was beautiful in life you know we have people were so off put by 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 death you know like i love this thing alive but i can't deal with it it's disgusting when it's dead and i thought of the bones and the feet and the teeth and the hair as as treasures you know it's just these beautiful treasures and i i had a twist on death from an early age because my mom was incredibly beautiful and amazing and a Leo, August 1st Leo that also told me I was a Leo my whole life. And only when I lived in a, in a coven called the temple of the goddess, were they there to let me know that I was actually a Virgo. And, um, and that was hilarious. Cause I read this, I remember this passage in this astrology book, this early astrology book um, that said, who criticizes all she sees, who hugs and loves her own disease, who would even analyze a sneeze, huh, Virgo. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. The critical Virgo, like I could feel it. It felt, because I was always thought I should be more confident if I was a Leo. And my mom told me I was a Leo, but it turned out I'm a Virgo. That's the, that, that, that made more sense to me. But my mother, wanted to die from a very young age. She had a lot of pain and darkness and um, issues that made her on certain days not want to live. And as a child, that um, kind of destroyed me and it terrified me. And there was a certain point where I made the switch in my mind that, okay, if you want to die, then, then that is a choice you can have to die. And so once I could accept that, then I could move on and, and let it be something she wanted to do instead of something being taken away from me. And then in that same time period, I asked if I could dig up our family dog, our beloved family Doberman and um, could. And so that started this love of bones and dead things. And that, that particular winter, I found a dead crow on the ground. And that was a magical moment to be alone in the woods and find this crow. And that just slowly, you know, was a theme through my life. And then as I was making more art in college and wanting to be more expressive and wanting to not do the same stuff that the other kids were doing at the time, it felt like, um, I am not necessarily able to express myself perfectly or well in, um, 
drawing, you know, I can draw my style. I love my style. I've evolved my style, but like life drawing or realistic drawing, I get a little bored with it. But if I can make an assemblage or a collage or begin mix collage and drawing and painting and be more free in it, then that helped me grow as an artist that helped me feel like I had more to say that way in the way that inviting people to look at something like here, you don't often get to look at this beautiful bone or part of an animal or, you know, dried up little dead mouse that I've preserved in resin on this collage. And I would combine it with tombstone rubbings and dried plants. And I still do that work. That work is just, that is part of, um, there's a feeling I get in doing that particular work of using the found objects that is really um, moving to me. I love that work. I love the paintings as well. Like those paintings, like you mentioned, like to come out of college in 92 and the floods were in Des Moines, Iowa in 93. So it was a, a great place to not be. And so I went on the road with a band all over the West Coast. Um, I sold all my hats in Taos, New Mexico that kind of funded the trip. And that gallery later came back to me and asked if I would make hats in their color palette. And I was like, I use found fabric. How dare you ask me to use your color palette? Which of course, months later, I was like, that was an opportunity that you just let go by because you felt like they, I felt they were hindering me somehow by asking me to use specific colors. But come back from, from this great tour, I'd never traveled much as a kid or my family didn't do a lot of traveling and saw San Francisco and Colorado and New Mexico and beautiful places on the West coast. And, um, then came back into being invited to paint murals at Terry Mary's. And I'd already painted some murals at Iowa state, but it was such a fun rock and roll, punk rock art and music and, uh, community, you know, motorcycles and just, um, it was super fun time. Like we had bands coming here that no one ever thought they would come here. I think, you know, we had smashing pumpkins. We had, um, Mud Honey, we had L7, just amazing camaraderie through music and youth and art. That place was covered like wall to wall in artwork. Jeff Wright was the owner. And for him to invite us all in to come and make art um, was pretty cool. I did their matchboxes too, which was a feat in itself. Now I think of like, I just use my, I make my own matchboxes for little art events. And for him to have had made these four-sided matchboxes, I know was not easy. For those of those of you that are, uh, you know, in Des Moines, Iowa, Harry Mary's was originally downtown where El Bait Shop is at this time in history. So that was downtown and then moved over to University. Were you involved with that site as well on University Avenue? You know, I painted one mural. I painted one mural at that site and went to a few shows there but I did not I was not as involved I was so loyal and sad about the the original that I couldn't really I didn't really dive into the new one and also I'm not sure what year that the university one opened but um my drinking had kind of escalated at that point I hadn't I didn't really have a drink of alcohol until my second year of college like I grew up in a house like I said with my mom being kind of sad and distraught and on a lot of drugs and that made me afraid of drugs it made me afraid of drinking I wanted people to think I was cool and drinking and using but I was 
really afraid of it. And so my using didn't really pick up until after college. And by 99, um, I was pregnant or I was pregnant in 98. And so that really changed a lot for me. I was pregnant with Helen and that was an incredible time. I had a second OWI car crash. Just, I'll just go right into that. I had a uh, head-on car crash. I was drunk driving and had some weed in my pocket because my mom wanted me to bring her some some weed. And I told her I was too drunk. And I think when a when an alcoholic tells you they're too drunk, man, they are drunk. D-R-U-N-K. Um, and so I had a head-on car crash and ended up um, in treatment for a second OWI. And I was in a 10-year tumultuous relationship um, with someone that is amazing and creative and interesting, but treated me in a way like, I, you know, we don't know where we lose our way. Like, I don't know where I lost my way. In my mind, he treated me the way that I felt about myself. But if I look back at myself before him, I was kind of a badass. I was kind of like independent and never thought I would let anybody treat me that way. And I didn't even believe in like rejection. I thought that was such a silly thing that, that people get hung up on that someone rejected them when it's not even real. It's just because someone doesn't want to date you anymore or be intimate with you anymore. That's not a rejection. That just means you say, okay, thanks. Um, but that feels a little bit earthy Virgo myself itself. <laughs> yeah. so some, some codependency there. Um, Amy, I, I think about this a lot. I, I, I've always identified as an artist, but I'm not an artist in like the physically making visual art kind of thing. I'm, I'm a writer, you know? Yes. And I think that writers always get kind of shat on, like, you know, like I mean, Pat, Patty Smith had to like, take her poetry onto the stage and like do something really, you know, irreverent and amazing to get to rock and roll status, you know? Yeah. And, and Hunter S. Thompson was always talking about that. Like writers are rock stars. Like I'm going to go hang out with the Rolling Stones and shit. Um, but I'm, I'm curious that, you know, you mentioned like wanting to be cool. And I think that that piece of alcoholism or drug abuse or substance abuse within the artist community, whether that's music, visual arts, Etc. What what do you think that connection is there with with glamour or this this ideal of what an artist should look like in our culture? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think at a time it was just um, cool to be destructive and cool to be different. In my mind, like I I I see it as that. But the truth of it is, is once I got sober, and people would say, "Well, you're an artist. Like you don't you have to kind of get wasted from time to time." Like. The, what I'm getting at is that I could say, oh, you're a construction worker. Don't you need a break? Don't you need to get kind of ripped to get taken care of? Or you're a doctor or you're this. So anybody anywhere like has that in there. But I think what happens is that the artists and the rockers and the musicians and the brilliant writers, um, we, we're a little more upfront about it. Or maybe it's been more something to put on display, to not hide whereas the other communities or occupations hide it a little more where we're all about like that suffering because we're sharing so much of ourselves. We're sharing the sorrow. We're sharing the joy. We're sharing the celebration. What you just said made me think of the, the sort of Shiva like quality of the creative and destructive process. 
which is creation. And to say that, you know, using, you know, cutting yourself or getting tattoos or, you know, getting super wasted or putting yourself in dangerous situations is sort of a self-destructive process. And that mirrors the creative process. You have to break down to build up. And I never thought of it that way. It's like that stimulation for experience. It kind of creates growth. Yes. I love it. It's so good. That's a good way. It's, it's, that's that, that fine line there. You know, it's like, what is making you feel? What is making you, um, like, I love art that moves me. I can look at beautiful stuff all day, but something that hurts or creates emotion or questions, you know, like some of us need that push, that push to feel like, I, you know, cutting myself, making, it was always an artful way of cutting myself, but it was like, what a great feeling that is. It's just that that need to feel something when maybe emotionally it wasn't really happening or the destructiveness of, um, you know, doing, doing too much drugs, like waking up and having someone tell you that they just brought you back to life because you died, but you don't really care because that's just part of my cool rock and roll story. Let's do it again. You know, um, that tragically we see so many people do it's a disconnect. It's a definite disconnect because I think the destruction comes from looking to feel because we've forgotten or we've lost that, that we're in here. There's, I think we have this idea that we have to look outside to find ourselves or the validation piece or the love piece, the acknowledgement, the attention. And it's so easy to get lost in that, to look for others to validate us that we're actually here, we're making stuff, we're important. And that the key to that is that we carry all the tools that we need within ourselves. Like we carry all that, but we, we're not taught that. And maybe we don't get it until, you know, we're, we're at that, that point, that crossroads kind of thing of, of which way to go down. Like it's either going to get, for me, it was either going to get worse or it was going to get better. And I was real scared, afraid that it was going to get worse. But I also was at this point in my art where I thought I might've ruined any creative gifts I was given. And um, I was scared to keep doing what I was doing. I didn't have a connection to myself. Um, and, you know, we get that little lesson that we're taught that the, the drinking and the drugs and the, the whatever, the codependence, the overeating, the sex addiction, the gambling, all that stuff to escape is just a symptom of not knowing how to live in our skin, not knowing how to live here in the moment in this body. We, we get so stuck in our head or so stuck in our hearts that we forget that we inhabit this whole healing kind of um, contraption that we live in. And when I came to a place of being pregnant and, and decided to keep the baby and wanted to be a different example for my daughter and wanted to love myself, but didn't know how to love myself because I thought it was so not cool. Like that, is that real? Like love isn't even a thing. Love isn't real. People don't really love each other. Cause I was kind of taught that people only want to hurt you and um, are out to get you and it's not real or else it's about what you have for them. And so when I thought of myself as something triggered that this, this idea, and it was a combination of reading the book autobiography of a Yogi and 
going to recovery meetings, 12 step meetings, and a little piece of paper that was on a chair that said, your house belongs to God. Your job belongs to God. Your kid, it was some little flyer. And I can't even remember the gist of it, or I can't remember the entirety of it, but the gist of it was that you don't own anything that you think you own. So that combination of the autobiography of a, of a yogi and um, that little statement and whatever else the thing was like put me in this spot to realize that I have a tendency that destruction part is like I wreck my stuff the artist in me wants everything to be a little bit broken a little bit damaged a little bit scuffed a little bit wrecked and I was doing the same thing to myself like thinking bad thoughts about myself or being in violent relationships or you know I'm the one that chose the scariest guy in the room that's the one I want or um continuing to act in a way as if it was all like it, it didn't matter and when it was when I could spin that into thinking about myself as being borrowed because if, if I borrow your stuff I take care of it like I borrow your car or your music or your house like I take care of other people's things but I wreck my things and so when I had to remind myself that I don't belong to me, that I am it's so temporary, just a little dust cloud floating for a second, that my job is to treat myself like I'm borrowed, to love myself, to look at that destructive stuff that I love to do, that destructive quality, and again, put it into the artwork or put it into the gym or put it into roller skating, put it into... <laughs> Some silliness and just bring love into it. Let yourself be loved was my motto. Is that dragon? It is dragon. Yay. <laughs> Hopefully everybody heard what you just said because I it's it's beautiful, Amy, and to and to think about um even even that is part of the the Virgo identity of like the, the healing process, taking care of the body the wholeness, um, your daily practices, right? And it, it's a ritual. If you are wired to be a fucking drunk like we are, it's a miracle to stay sober for a day. Yeah, you know? it's so crazy. <laughs> I was telling Dan that it's just so weird how it creeps up and it, it never leaves. Like my mom did not like that I was, there were moments where she did not like that I was sober. In the end, we had an incredible experience at her death. She blasted my heart open so beautifully and but there were times where she kind of resented my recovery and was like you know you think you're holier than thou like you're this and that and it's never quite like that like I was in I love to take the stairs in the hotels rather than yeah rather than the elevators because I'm a sneak I'm still a sneak and um I was in the stairwell and it was my birthday yesterday. And I was like, this would be a really great place to shoot up. Like I love, I still keep, keep a little tab of clean public bathrooms that are individual like where the door shuts behind you and you're the only one in there. This right. is, this would be a great place to drink or to use drugs. Let me make a note of that. I have like almost 19 years clean and sober, <laughs> but we still have that. Like you say, like, you know, what do they say? One drink away from a drunken disaster. Like to have that thought cross my mind yesterday, like, oh, this would be a great place to just pop a little shot off. Little, 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 little dab of heroin would be nice on your birthday. I'm like, oh, that's so wild because 
it's not, it's not good. <laughs> the truth is, is that would not be good. Uh, I remember, remember planning my relapses that I never did, you know, <laughs> cause I, you know, cause I, I think that it's like, you have to give your mind the creative opportunity so then you can knock it down, you know, yes. and, like yes. talk yourself out of it in a way, but I do not recommend that to people. It was just part of my process. Yeah. I mean, I get you. And I think it's so tomorrow like if you're early in recovery and it's mm-hmm. and it's you know terrible like where it took me three years to get to a space where I can not respond to that craving to not respond to that need to feed that that small self it's just the small self that wants to respond to a craving and to like I'm clear on what it's like to be all kinds of messed up but I wasn't clear on what it's like to go to a family event sober or to to walk into the world and hold my head high and meet someone's eyes and be stone cold sober. And I I was only out there for like 10 years, but you know, to have those tricks of saying like, maybe you play to be able to play it through. Like, I know what happens after that. I actually puke after this. I can't keep my eyes open and I don't really like the feeling. And then I'm going to have to do something that's worth, you know, it's like just Mm -hmm. to get to the space that you don't forget that you're the one that wants this. So, if you, if you want to fantasize about using, just make sure you're going to do it tomorrow every time. Like I have a friend that's in a, in a drunk house or what is it called? A um, halfway house? sober house. It's a sober house. I call that a drunk house. I'm sorry. It's a sober house, but they um, have been drinking and they think they're fooling everyone there. They came to this state to get sober with their body absolutely shutting down, like very, very bad health happening because of the drinking. And now in this sober house, and it's that insidious fascination with thinking that it's someone else's idea that they get sober. When it's, it was initially their idea because they want to live longer. They want to take care of their body. They want to be healthy, but that the addiction lives in us so cleverly to think, oh yeah, you could do this. You could have some drinks and don't listen to them. Keep doing, you know, just keep feeding me because we have such a wonderful time together. And to see the insanity that comes from that, the insanity that comes from lying every to everyone in the house, but everybody already knows and to have to go through then finding a new place to live and start everything over, which is part of the deal. That just means that's what, that's what they have to do to keep going, whatever it takes to keep going, but to be in that small moment of thinking they fooled everyone. Like I like to say, don't forget that you're the one that wants to get sober. Yep. It's you. It's on you. I would hide from my friends. I would go, I would say I was, I would tell everyone I quit, but that I quit drinking at the one bar. And then I would go to the bar down the way to have my drinks and then come back. But nobody cares as much as you care, as I care. Like I'm the one that cared. They don't care. They'd rather me not talk about not drinking or drinking. Like <laughs> shut up and do it or don't. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, all right. So I want to talk about, let me see the, like the idea of process and, you know, where does that nervous energy from drinking and drugging, where does that get channeled now? I mean, I know, like, I think of, you know, recently there was a um, vandalism of a, like a, was it Brianna Taylor or a BLM display that was in Des Moines? And you just like stopped your car and you had your art supplies and you just like covered this thing up. Oh yeah. 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 No big deal. Yeah, no yeah. big deal. And and I just think of of even the way that your work is that you can really kick out 
a lot <laughs> in a very short amount of time because you keep it simple. Yeah. And yeah. you, you are, I mean, these, these massive murals that you do, I have no, I, I just, I have no idea how you do it, but you must just think like, Oh, just one paint stroke at a time. You yeah. <laughs> I, I love that process. Like I love painting these huge murals and that was a really fun, um, a little, you know, side stop, but it, what it meant it meant more to me that people realized that someone was still out there that, I mean, they're obviously we're, they're still out there. We're still out there. White people are still out there in their whiteness where we haven't gone anywhere. We all live in our, in our stuff that to, to write whatever they wrote. I don't remember what they wrote, but it was great to just cover it up and just do that. I didn't want to be too acknowledged for that because that, that was, you know, it's easy to make that, the hero, like, and I had nothing to do with it. I just do, did what need to, needed to be done. But I'm actually sitting in a building that has one of the biggest murals I've ever painted on it. And it's just this, it's a perception thing. Like I get to make them small because I'm not a realistic painter and mix colors and shading and line. I just lay it on there. I love it so much. That is just a magical thing to do to transform a space. So that nervous energy, that, that alcoholism, that isolation, that, that, you know, sitting and obsessing about self, whether I think I suck or I think I'm amazing, you know, it's still me thinking about me. So taking that energy and spinning the world into like my life's not happening and my, my life is not happening to me. It's not happening to me. I am participating in my life. So that recovery brings about this ability to, to share with others. What am I bringing into the world? Like we said, how am I being of service? Which isn't anything that interested me before. It was all about I've always been a little bit of a loner, a little bit of an isolator. I can be very social and love to be in settings, but then I'm done. It's like my mom was the same way. She would be like, don't, you know, dark house, all the wrong clocks. Don't come in here unless you're invited and then leave when I say. But being of service in the world with color and line and transforming walls so that anonymously someone will walk by and ha see something that says, you know, maybe it's just a color that uplifts your your energy a little bit, or maybe it says you're amazing, be amazing, do your thing. That is stuff I love. And that, that perception of it being so big, I can make it really small in my mind because I've done so, so much of it. And, um, that, that energy goes into those big pieces and being of service in the community, the best way I know how. And, and for years I was teaching yoga and, and then I got really weirded out by yoga and the spiritual white woman. I was like, Ooh, I don't want to, and I, I've always come from a place of, you know, your dirty punk rocker from the Des Moines backyard trying to teach you to arrive in your body, you know, because I went to yoga to get sober. It did not get me sober, but it got me in my body. And yeah. that was a miraculous place to be like, oh shit, I live in this thing. Like this thing can do things. This body can do things other than get in fights and get wasted, you know, and, um, that, that felt like a way of service for a while until it didn't, until it felt like we had enough yoga teachers in Des Moines. We have enough amazing, you know, fitness yoga. I, I like to, to offer my yoga at places where people that don't want to go to the yoga studio would go. Like I was at a bookstore um, that was lovely at Whispers. I was at some of, uh, at the House of Mercy for a year. It was incredible to teach yoga there as I was learning, as I was growing in my practice. And that felt like a 
really great way to be of service and to go to the women's prison and to um, kind of reach out on social media, just put little tidbits out there. And now it's at a space of, I feel like meditation is a, a, a different and better offering, not better, but different because there's, there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot of recovery and a lot of people that feel hindered by the language in the, in, in the 12 step in the AA, you know, that, and I know they've just come out with a reworded, um, gender neutral big book, which is amazing and fascinating. And people still get hung up on the God thing. And, and that we had refuge recovery for a year, which, or a couple of years, actually, we had like six meetings a, a week, which is a, an incredible Buddhist, um, recovery program. And then that, kind of fell on its head for a minute and we have the dharma recovery group and i get even i get hung up i don't know if it's a virgo thing you can tell me like i get hung up on anything being too big like aa is really big and then the the buddhist thing got really big without really people diving into the real teachings they would just buy the tj maxx t-shirt with the buddha on it and and and, and there's more to it than that and i that's a critical part of me that would be judgy of that thing so we just have this open-ended meditation meeting that celebrates buddhism that celebrates um transcendental meditation that celebrates the meditation that you just did something that's so visual and beautiful and just getting into the body and i never would have thought i would have been a part of the community to share and give back you know 20 years ago and to be in that space in my life now to slowly come back after being shut down a little bit at the beginning of, of COVID and like really wanting to gather my thoughts with yoga and how I feel about it and learning from the appropriate teachers that guide me. Um, that, you know, I feel like this meditation is great. Offering my art is great. And also I'm taking back some of my, um, I've posted it a few times, which is silly. Like, okay, I'm done with custom orders for a minute. I'm done. Like I have a lot of work. I want to show the world. I have a big, a book I'm working on and I let the work that people, I let custom orders get in the way of that. Like that, that, like I, I need a year off to work on something for you, for the world. And so I've had to shut down custom orders because it's easy to keep going with those because it makes me feel needed and of value. But it's like, really, I have some other things to show you. And so that's been an interesting thing to navigate within that, within this, you know, how we show up in the world, how we show how I show up in 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 the community, in recovery, in meditation, in art, in this whole package of of um, what I hope to be just that integrated self, you know, like never the same. It's temporary. We're always changing and having containing the light in the dark. I appreciate everything that you just shared. You know, I, I, I know that feeling of being outside of your body and that finding a practice like yoga, which is not competitive, especially if you're kind of wired like us or we want to be alone. We don't really want to compete with other people. We're competitive with ourselves enough. Like we're hard right. enough yeah, on yeah. ourselves, right? And so to, to find a practice like, you know, um, I don't want to call it Western yoga because that's not what it's about at all. But there were, you know, the fitness version of yoga that we're seeing widely, broadly in the United States is 
um, you know, Swedish and British calisthenics that were taken away from, you know, imperialism, colonialism ah, in India, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, I, I struggle a lot with my identity as a, as a white practitioner because, you know, white people really need to confront our own identities and our own histories of violence that have been so problematic and have washed out uh, folk healing from like Celtic cultures, like, you know, my Irish heritage and the violence from, you know, the, the British culture and, and, and how we, you know, you go to Europe and there's like, uh, like torture museums that you can go visit, like the London dungeon or, yes, you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and I, I, like, where are our folk healing practices as white people? So I think that we've, we've rinsed them out. And so we're looking towards these other cultures to give us wisdom back that we have forgotten, lost to history, burned and took away. Um, so I, I do see this reemergence of these, these more folk traditional practices. Um, I, I really cringe at 90s white enlightenment culture. Um, you know, where, where it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so eclectic. Like I, you know, I have access to all this travel and all these experiences that most people don't have access right. to in their entire yeah. lifetime. So let me show you the little statue I bought at this place. And let me tell you the story about when I went to Thailand or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like your accessibility to people who would not normally use their body and to have trauma informed practices, like why we, why we run away from our bodies because of, of violence against women, violence against people, uh, period that are not in that, you know, kind of dominant male group. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a scholar in these kinds of practices, but I'm certainly well read enough to know that, um, we have to reckon with our own identities and our own pain bodies until there is collective healing. So I, I am not against yoga as a, as an integrative practice, if it's used intentionally for the, the form of getting back in your body and celebrating your being. And it was, it was that, that finally got me to the meditation cushion because I could find stillness in a painful stance, right? Not painful, but uncomfortable, sure. right? Yeah. And that comes back to that. Like, I need to be a little uncomfortable to grow, right? Right. Yeah. So then you can sit on your cushion and be like, wow, my, my mind is incredibly uncomfortable. How do I sit with this discomfort oh. and not get off my cushion? And that's, I think that's where people run away from meditation is because it is the most uncomfortable shit ever in the beginning. Cause you have like everything, your jar gets shook up, all of the mud and crust and rocks and icky things from your past sort of gets resurfaced to be resettled, to heal, to filter, however you want to see that. But um, I love that you are sharing that wisdom with the work that you do in the recovery community, offering people who are like not into the steps. Um, you know, I'm, I'm telling on myself when I'm like, oh yeah, like I am 11 years sober and sometimes I still feel kind of dry because, <laughs> you know, like we have to constantly be working our, ourselves. Um, and I, you know, my Virgo placement is in the 12th house service, spirituality, mysticism, psychology. Right. And, but you, you know, you have to like wear that on your sleeve this lifetime to, to do this process, to do this work, to do your body integration and your trauma integration. And, and, uh, what you said about small things, that's a very Virgo activity, right? Like drawing tiny images yes, that, <laughs> yes, yes. with the hands. Yes. Um, I do, I do want to um, shift gears a little bit while I still have you on the phone because um, you 
just collaborated in the last year with uh, this beautiful person in the Des Moines area. Um, and I met Kara through Kin and we are like sisters of the moon, dude. We just love each other so much. And you two collaborated on one of the most beautiful wisdom decks that I've ever seen. Um, and for the listeners out there, uh, a divination deck or an oracle deck is going to be different than a tarot deck, although it uses symbology to help uh, mirror your own inner wisdom, right? And I would love to hear like, you know, we've been talking about animals and your relationships with digging up animals and seeing the beauty in dead animals. And now, <laughs> and now there's this like, oh, like we're not talking about, you know, monkeys and elephants and things that are not in our wisdom culture growing up in the United States. You're talking about prairie majesty, prairie majesty oracle and the wisdom of our immediate environments. Um, this deck is so gorgeous Amy I, I really feel like this is like such a representation of your current work and who you are at this moment in time this integration of like the dark and the muck and the compost pile and then the sunshine and flowers and yes beautiful. yes thank you so much it has been just such a wonderful um wonderful project to be a part of and people for years have been telling me you should do a tarot deck or an oracle deck and and I was thinking today before we talked about um there was a time when you might remember, like in order to find our spiritual our tarot deck or um, even oils or those type of things, like the occult was always mixed with the head shops in Des Moines. So there were the shops where they would always have <laughs> the tarot decks and the glass pipes, you know? So I was thinking, oh, that's so cute to think of, re remember that because it had escaped my mind and just tarot decks have always been intimidating to me, but so brilliant. And I have sketchbooks full of like writing every symbol down and every card down, but it never felt like an, a, a, something I could accomplish in making an entire tarot deck. So when Kara, Kara Simons, she approached me, I think it was a phone call and she said, I'm, I'm doing this Oracle deck and I wasn't even clear what an Oracle deck was at the time. I knew that an Oracle was generally something you asked. It was like a somewhere to ask questions or somewhere to take your inquiry, something you were wondering about. And so I was intrigued. And then she told me it was about the, the prairie, the prairie plants and animals. And I was like, oh yeah, I got this. No problem. Because animals are a huge part of my, my being. Like, as a person that takes inspiration and comfort from animals and, and plants, you know, mostly animals at the time, but loving to be in the woods and in nature. And I'm not a gardener necessarily, but I will definitely walk through the woods almost every day. I have a path behind our house. And so when she we've, we talked to me about it, then we decided to have a meeting and get more, um, get more information and she had a folder she's so organized and clear and concise and like you say you're immediate you can immediately feel her genuine um love and caring and presence and strength and she's really amazing I've never met anyone like her in all my time it's been so lovely to work with her and I and I came at it as you know I hope we can stay th friends through this project because this is a big project and Sometimes there's a lot of opinion involved in this kind of thing. And I knew we would stay friends, but 
I did not know it would be such a wonderful healing, um, um, relationship, just so wonderful. So we met for dinner at, um, a, a restaurant in Des Moines that we love. And she kind of gave me the idea of, of the deck. And I had told her like, my dreams have more animals than people. Like when I dream, I hardly ever have people in my dreams, but there'll be a lion and a monkey and a snake and a stork. I mean, animals all around all the time. And there had been this influx of words in my dream, like a, a, a billboard or a sign, a bulletin board with words on it. And even a person showed up, um, a very odd little person holding a sign, trying to get me to read it. And I can never decipher the language. Like language is a really interesting thing in dreams. I could never read the words. And finally, I was in this dream surrounded by animals and there's a bulletin board and I lift up this post-it note and the word it's sovereign. Like I remembered the word, the word was sovereign. And I was like, oh, I had to look it up even like just to be sure that it meant what I thought it meant. And I was like, that is such a good word. It was so right where I needed to be because I think it's easy for us to spread ourselves so thin and even in the realm of healing and light workers and just like, oh yeah, I am sovereign. Like I get to be my healer. I get to be my, my own person. Like it's easy to think we should be more like others or more like this way or that way. And that being inspired by others and coming into our true sovereign nature is, is, is where it was at for me at that time. And when we sat down and she said the tagline for this Oracle deck was explore your sovereign nature. I was like, Whoa, like it was just such a cool meant to be moment and told her the story of my dream. And she would wait and write these cards out when, when the animals and plants like came to her for, for, the message that they wanted to convey about who they are and how they are and how we can be inspired and learn from them. And she would send me the, the words and I would just illustrate it. Like, I'm just the, I'm just the, I'm just the one that did the drawings based on her incredible direct yet gentle writing. Like her writing in this deck is so poignant because it's not too fluffy. It's not too, um, out there or what would that be like too general it's very direct and personal and accessible which is absolutely what Kara is yes that's it that's it yeah and so you know we got through it I drew it all through pandemic like one at a time and one at a time a day at a time or a couple cards a day and we just kept going and her um you know, her wisdom and just knowledge of getting us through this, you know, we would just, we just got it done. And then we did a Kickstarter and we met our goal on the Kickstarter. And it's been such a delight that it's been well received and used and absorbed and um, loved by people all over the world, which is really cool. I can't wait to see where this deck goes. And I'll, I'll post some pictures of that when, when I uh, put this interview up, but they are really special, Amy, and you can see the collaboration and the mirroring that you and Kara do together. And I, I could not have imagined this being done any better. Oh, and it's- I have, I, I got to say, I have goosebumps when you say that because I'm reminded that, you know, she couldn't get through a card without having to go through what it was teaching her. You know, she couldn't, she couldn't just write a card out with the message from the animal and, and just put it there. She had to go through the lesson as well, which meant that by the time it got to me, I had to either integrate that lesson or acknowledge it or 
know that I'm going through it as well. And, and incorporating the animals that I love, like those animals that get um, sort of shook off because people are afraid of them or they're dirty, like vulture and earthworm and snake. It was like, oh, this is so good because it's all such a real part of life. We need that for the for the vulture to be digest, for the earthworm to talk about um, breathing, you know, and am I, re- and I think snake is the one, the prairie king snake is like, am I bigger than my own fear or something like that? Am I, am I just these beautiful juxtapositions of language and um, like you say, accessibility and beauty of nature was, it's been an honor to be a part of this with her. Yeah. Well, yeah, Prairie Majesty Oracle is available through Joyful Resonance, and I'll post all that information up. Um, Amy, thank you for talking with me today. And is what's what's ahead for you? What's next? Is there any Ooh. big mural projects? Or yes, it's 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 good. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been it's always lovely to chat with you and um, share a little bit in the community about. And I'm accessible too. If anyone wants to talk recovery or art or meditation or just get away or I'm also I like to tell people that they can I'm here when people want to talk about how things suck or things that are not right it's not all rainbows and bubblegum all the time and what I'm working on now is a um is a well I have a couple murals lined up that that are lovely and I appreciate but I'm working on a book that is based on two art shows that I had one in 2013 and one in 20. 19, um, based on, um, some family trauma, like my mom's little sister in a car crash. And that is why my mom wanted to die all the time. And that's why I got interested in death and, um, why it, it was just a part of our life, this, this story. And it was that the first show was called, um, shapeshifter, the art of family tragedy and how to be amazing anyway. And it was about how we inherit these dark stories. We inherit uh, sorrow and heaviness and things we don't even know that we're carrying with us, but the how to be amazing anyway part was like that half the, 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 um, the art of family tragedy part was the collage bit. And then the how to be amazing anyway, were paintings on, you know, having an altar, having ritual, having gratitude, like a loving your body, loving this, this body that you live in and like how we can still navigate life and work through trauma and inspire others. And then several years later in 2018, my mom passed away and we had a moment, like I said, where she, you know, I closed the window, you know, closed the lights down in the room she was in. And I asked her guides and animals to be there. And I asked her what she needed. I knew she was out of her body. She had left her body, but she was on a a machine and she just blasted my heart so hard with this ferocious motherly love. That was just incredible. So we had this great moment. And then I did an art show after that, where I kind of put the closure on this, the end of this story of her little sister being killed in a car crash the whole family had always wanted someone to pay for it. They carried such weight and resentment and sorrow. And um, I'm putting it all together in a book because it was, there were shows that were open to the public, but um, somewhat private as well because of the content. And um, I think it is worthy of all being kind of documented in a book to share. Like I let the community come in and share their 
their family story, their personal story, they could contribute to a collage that the community got prints of, or they could add something to the fire. And the the turnout at that event in June of um, 2019 was incredible. And so I'm finally at a space where I feel confident enough that, um, not com I mean, it's confident, but it's also because it was so much about closing the door, about ending this cycle of family trauma, I wanted to be done with it, but I've been inspired to share it. You know, I didn't want people to be sick of hearing me talk about it, but I think it can, this book will be a really great way to document the artwork that was involved and some of the um, important bits of, of this work. And so I'm working on that. I'm excited about that. I'm rearranging my studio to be bigger. I have um, an open studio event planned for October where people can come on October 16th and 17th and see the space, see the studio, see what I'm working on and also buy prints and some Prairie Majesty Oracle decks if they like. I'll have some of those. I'll have patches. I'll have paintings and little territorial guardian, guardians, I call them. And so just kind of switching gears for a minute from doing artwork for everyone else to getting back to some work I've really wanted to work on of my own to offer the community. So boom, there that is. And I thank you so much for, like I say, for chatting me up and letting me come be a part of your um, part of your podcast, part of your show. I know people get so much out of your energy and the work that you do for them. And it's lovely. Oh, Amy, you've, you've been an inspiration to me since I was a kid. And I think it's so cool to be, you know, you're not like the, the cool college kid. And I was like the dorky teenager. Like, you know, I mean, I think of you as a, as a colleague and someone I, I tremendously uh, admire and appreciate. And thank you for letting me I don't know, I guess like show you off. I, I just think you're amazing. So thank you so much for making time. You bet, Lauren. Thank you so much. And that was my interview with Virgo artist, meditation, yogi, community, activist, all the things. That was Amy Putney Koenig of Des Moines, Iowa. You can find her information on Instagram. That's where she's the most active. And she has a show coming up here in October, mid-October. So I will uh, post those links to her account. And I'll also post up uh, the Etsy page for the Perry Majesty Oracle deck so that you can have a look at that deck and see if it resonates with you. It's It's been really meaningful for me to support this deck because I, I really like it. I am not a tool person, but this one I feel is um, deeply, deeply genuine. Um, and I'm, I'm really appreciative of Kara and Amy for producing such a magical and meaningful deck and two people I love and they came together and they did this amazing thing. <laughs> so this is Lauren K. Hickman. You've been listening to the Inspired Astrology podcast. Please like and subscribe pass it on, let people know about this work. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Lauren K. Hickman. Sign up for the Moon Mailer and you'll get information directly to your inbox. Uh, you can support this work through Venmo at Lauren K. Hickman or through my website and doing a monthly donation called Dragon Donna. Um, I am so appreciative of my supporters making it possible for me to do this work. 
So of course, I'm available in the Milwaukee area for in-person readings. I have some dates coming up for Des Moines here coming in October. So stay tuned for that. Uh, You can book me virtually online for astrology as well as Reiki consultations. Uh, Energy work always involves uh, meditation, intuitive counsel, uh, and then the support for the work here, whether that is astrological insight and therapeutic astrology or doing some deeper work while reclined in your bed with my voice in your head and guiding energy, Reiki, universal energy um, to support you in your process of unfolding. And until next time, stay inspired.